Join us now for Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm Keith Poston. Just one day after the General Assembly passed a new state budget, Governor Roy Cooper announced he was vetoing it, citing lack of investment in public education and failure to expand Medicaid to provide health coverage for low-income North Carolinians. So what happens next? We're joined today by two top political reporters to discuss it. We're also going to continue our series of interviews with candidates for state superintendent when we're joined by a former director at the Department of Public Instruction, Amy Jablonski. Before we tackle our main topics, we open with our headlines, a quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. The Department of Public Instruction has rejected a challenge from a company that claims it was improperly passed over for a multi-million dollar contract to test student reading. DPI says the company missed the window to lodge a protest by two days. Amplify submitted its challenge on June 24th. DPI says the 15-day cutoff was June 22nd, a Saturday. Now, Amplify says statute is clear that if a deadline falls on a weekend, it rolls to a Monday. But the contract for, with iStation has been controversial since it was announced. One of our guests in the second half of the show has been right in the middle of it, and we'll ask her about it then. The state's innovative school district's only school, Southside Ashpole Elementary in Robeson County, is looking for a new principal. Bruce Major, hired less than a year ago, has resigned. The ISD, created by the General Assembly in 2016, has seen its share of turnover in its first full year of operations. The ISD's first superintendent, Dr. Eric Hall, resigned for a state education job in Florida. He was replaced by Latisa Allen, who we learned this week is no longer employed by DPI. Finally, a bipartisan bill to reduce the number of standardized tests is facing some pushback from the North Carolina Chamber. Senate Bill 621 that was passed by the House this week would eliminate more than 20 state-mandated tests. Now, while many parents and educators cheered the proposed reductions, last week the Chamber did weigh in against the measure citing the importance of the test for accountability and workforce readiness. Now, remember, you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org, click on Education Matters, and read more about each of these headlines, as well as all the other topics we cover each week. As I said at the top of the show, a new state fiscal year may have started July 1st, but as of right now when we're taping the show, there is no approved state budget for this year or next. And joining us to talk about the state of where we are are two of the sharpest political reporters and minds in Raleigh. We've got Lauren Horsch. Lauren is a reporter with The Insider, the North Carolina Insider, a must-read for state political junkies. Lauren is also a good Twitter follow if you're interested. <laughs> uh, Will Doran. Will is with the Raleigh News and Observer. Uh, he reports on North Carolina politics. He also His role also includes leading their fact-checking effort, PolitiFact. So, Will, thanks so much for being here. All right, let's, having us. All right, well, Will, Lauren, let's, let's set the table first, if we can. So, we're heading toward, we're, we're heading toward the end of the week. Where are we? The, the majority, the GOP majority passed a two-year budget, uh, largely on party lines. There were a few Democrats that did vote for it in both the House and the Senate. Sent it to the Democratic Governor, Roy Cooper. He vetoed it. Okay, so now where are we? Lauren? There's a lot of questions here. Uh, right now, we are at a standstill. So Cooper did veto it, but he also offered up a counterproposal yesterday. So he sent that to GOP leaders, uh, Senator Berger, who's the leader in the Senate, and House Speaker Tim Moore. Uh, they didn't have a lot of time to read that yesterday because they were in the middle of session. Uh, so they're looking over that right now. Um, but what they did do in the meantime, 
we're not going to have a government shutdown, but we still have a lot of programs that aren't going to be funded. So the House currently is working on a stopgap measure to fund certain federal programs and other issues that might pop up in state government, like um, average daily membership at schools, average teacher pay raises. So they, they just passed a stopgap stop gap measure in the House just earlier today on Wednesday. So we're, we're getting there, but there's still a lot of moving going on because they want to Roy Cooper governor Roy Cooper wants to negotiate with the Democrat with the Republicans I should say um, but there's some unhappy feelings between both parties at the moment sure well well I mean uh, Lauren just sort of mentioned about the stopgap and I mean this is um, we've been covering it for the last uh, two or three years on this show this budget process is different this year on a number of fronts and one is folks are used to these um, like uh, potential shutdowns and things not getting funded. The person, we've seen that on the federal government way too many times. That's not going to happen just because of some legislation, right? Correct, the state government doesn't shut down if there's no budget. Uh, basically what happens is, like Lauren was saying, we just continue operating essentially with the existing budget. So new things that got funded in the budget wouldn't happen, obviously, until that budget is passed. But it, it's not like people would be uh, furloughed, kicked out, you know, kicked right. out of work or anything like that. But you know, people might not see their raises come in. Yeah, and that's let's let's make sure that we're clear on that because we have a lot of we obviously have a lot of teachers and educators who watch this show, state employees. So why well, not state employees, for example, in the in the budget that the the general assembly passed, get a pretty good pay raise. So that wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, there wouldn't be any any of the sort of regular raises um, for any state employee. Correct. So those, I guess you would say, we're in it would be in a pay freeze until there is a budget. Yeah, so if they were eligible for a raise in the budget that was passed by the General Assembly, but Governor Cooper vetoed that, they're not getting that raise, but they're still going to get paid. They're still going to make what they were making last year based off of last year's fiscal year budget. So they're going to they don't have to worry about their paycheck right now, but if they were looking forward to that raise, they might have to wait a couple of weeks, maybe a month or more. All right, let me get your thoughts on this. Um did you expect going into this session more negotiations or compromises during the process, then, okay, then this is maybe some of my opinion. Then we saw, I mean, look, I mean, before there were, when there was a supermajority, I mean, you literally had a conference committee report that came out with no, I mean, it was, there was, and it didn't matter. The governor's budget was, it was sort of completely ignored and it was fine because they didn't have to have, I guess I was expecting there to be a little more attempt to try to find something that was signable. And it seemed like it looked a lot like the last couple of years. What do you think? From my from my thought process, my aspect since I work in the General Assembly every day was I kind of knew it was going to come down to this. They were going. It was always going to be a veto. Uh, the Republicans in the General Assembly really don't want Medicaid expansion. I mean, Senate Leader Phil Berger has said that his caucus does not have the votes, and there was just no way he would get his members to sign on to a budget that had a pure Medicaid expansion. So there was always going to be that kind of rub there where people weren't going to get along. Um, I thought there might have been some negotiations early on, but members have met with Cooper over the years, and I'm, there's been meetings over months, these appropriation meetings. Um, but I think I always thought it was going to come down to. I a mean, these guys all know each other. I mean, it's not just because I mean they're, they didn't just all just land in their positions. I mean, I mean Governor Cooper served with. Mm -hmm. I mean, he knows he knows Phil Burr. He knows Tim Moore. So anyway, but it's, that is the political part of it. Well, I mean, you mentioned Medicaid. Well, do you, what are the major sticking points? I mean, is it is it primarily still is it Medicaid expansion? Is it teacher pay? What is what are the where are they furthest apart? 
Medicaid expansion for sure. Governor Cooper has been pretty clear since this spring when he rolled out his own budget proposal that he wants Medicaid expansion this year in 2019. That's his main goal for the year is what he said back in, I think it was February, maybe March. And it appears that there's support for at least something close to Medicaid expansion in the House of Representatives. Um, the House actually passed a kind of Medicaid expansion, uh, but the, the Republican version of it. Uh, right. Donnie, Donnie Lambeth, who's a health care executive from Winston-Salem, Republican uh, representative, he said that basically this is what they think that uh, North Carolina is ready for culturally. And this was the one that had some uh, work, work requirements. requirements right? Yeah. But let me make sure my facts are right, because um, I've, I've got these, I've seen these from the governor's office and others. They're talking about about more than 400,000, maybe close to 500,000 North Carolinians, if Medicaid expansion passed, would be covered by Medicaid that aren't currently today. Are theirs? Yeah, those are the numbers we're hearing from both sides. Okay. Yes. And I've, I believe there's around a million uninsured North Carolinians. So that would uh, cover half, basically. So maybe it's a no, this is half. no small deal. Correct. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of people, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? You mentioned the stop gap spending proposal. Is that going to happen in the Senate? I think it's going to happen in the Senate. Now, they've gone home for the week, so we haven't been able to talk to them a lot. Um, but they have things they know they need to get funded. So if they want those things funded, they have to do that. What's, what are the chances that there's not that we just don't have a budget? I mean, when, when, the, when the General Assembly passed, the, basically to say we're going to revert to the last, I mean, I think a lot of observers looked at it and said you know, they were anticipating not having a supermajority. And so at least we know that we could just keep the budget priorities mm -hmm. that we already had I mean there's do they have do they have a lot of motivation to actually have a budget compromise with the governor I think there's some motivation there just because there are a lot of things that the General Assembly wants funded not just Republicans but also Democrats there's a lot of money in this budget that go that goes to members districts sure. you got a lot of we call it pork or earmarks um, the correct term would be member money but they have a lot of projects right. that they want funded um, so they want to get that passed, but yeah, we do have that measure where we're not going to go into a shutdown. So if at some point we're at an impasse and no one can agree on anything, you might just see the General Assembly call it quits for a couple of weeks and come back and figure something out else later. Do you, uh, so, so where, so I guess, uh, what are some of the worst case scenarios? Will, I'll ask you, and then Lauren, I mean, like, so what, what's going to happen like if things, I get, it sounds like to me, Senator Burke, I'm not signing, I'm not doing Medicaid expansion. The governor's like, I'm not going to sign a budget without it. And there's all these other things. I mean, is, is, the, is the worst case scenario just reverting to last year or are there other things that could happen? Um, yeah, I, I think one of the pluses of North Carolina is that we don't have a government shutdown. So there isn't really a, a scenario that would be as bad as when the federal government can't figure out a budget. Uh, in the state here, you know, there's been a lot of uh, talk about little, you know, bargaining chips within the budget uh, that both sides could try to use to maybe, you know, get some members to defect. Um, like Lauren was talking about with the, the pork money, you know, if, if there's some money to be found that can be sent to a uh, Democrats district for, you know, a, a nice project that they can go back home and tell their constituents, hey, I got, mm -hmm. you know, this new little league field built or I got all this money for disaster relief or something like that, then I, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people think that we might see stuff like that, uh, you know, little bargaining chips. All right, to quickly, last word, Lauren, um, give me a date. When's this thing going to be resolved? January 15, 2021. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm only kind of kidding there. No, we, we, might, we could see a 2015 situation where we don't have a budget signed until September.
October. Well, Lauren, thank you for the information. We'll, we'll keep following you and uh, your reporting, but thank you for what you do down there and helping us to get informed about what's going on next. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Well, after our brief commercial break, we're going to be joined by a Democratic candidate for State Superintendent Amy Jablonski. But before we go to break, see if you can answer this question. In 2009, North Carolina funded 31,000 NC pre-K seats. How many North Carolina pre-K seats were funded in 2018? Education Matters is brought to you each week in part by Town Bank, serving others, enriching lives. Did you correctly answer D, 29,000? This past year, the state funded 29,000 NC pre-K seats, about 2,000 less than in 2009. About 44% of eligible children in the state are served by NC pre-K. Next, we are continuing our series of interviews with candidates who have announced they are running for state superintendent of public instruction next year, a position currently held by Republican Mark Johnson. Today, we have Dr. Amy Jablonski. She is a former director at DPI, uh, the department that she now wants to lead as Correct. state superintendent. So welcome to Education Matters. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Sure. Well, let's, let's start out first. Just uh, you know, tell me, tell our viewers who are watching that these are obviously folks who care about education. Yeah. What's your back, sort of where are you from, sort of what, you know, sort of what sort of led you to sort of where you're now wanting to run and lead our state's public schools? Um, well, I started my teaching career here in North Carolina. Um, I actually sought out North Carolina because it was at that time when I came here, it was the top-notch state in the South um, that everybody was flocking to. Right. Um, and I wanted to flock as well <laughs> and be part of it. So I started my teaching career here. Um, I taught and then... Um, Which district? I taught in Hickory City Schools. Okay. Yeah, so I started my teaching career in Hickory. Um, and then as time went on, uh, my principal at the time had encouraged me to apply for the Principal Fellows Program. And so I got into the Principal Fellows Program and got my master's degree um, at University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Um, I got to do a year-long internship under Dr. Julie Morrow and did that in Mooresville Graded School District. And then started my um, administration career in Cabarrus County Schools, where I was an administrator at school level and a district level. Um, then, as again, as just like my principal did, I had other people who asked me if I would look at statewide roles for a leadership position. They saw what I was doing in Cabarrus and thought, hey, others can benefit from that too. Yeah. Um, so I started taking some regional and then a statewide position as I began my doctoral program at UNC Greensboro. So I have my PhD in educational leadership with a focus on social justice. Right. Um, so then I did land up at the Department of Public Instruction where um, I was a division director. Um, for a division called Integrated Academic and Behavior Systems, um, supporting all of our 1.6 million children um, across the state. Right. Well, you so you've certainly seen from so from 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 being a, you were a classroom from a classroom yes. teacher to school administration to actually in the state agency. So you you certainly understand sort of the scope of what your job would be like. But I guess let me the, I'll ask you the same question. Really, one of the first questions I've asked everyone on: Why are you running for state superintendent? And to start with that question, I want, I want to paraphrase a, a quote from Barbara Jordan, um, who basically says that if today's society does not challenge the wrongdoings, then later on it will look like that the majority thought the wrongdoings were appropriate. And the wrongdoings for our public school system here in North Carolina um, are not okay, which is why I'm running for state superintendent. Um, I also believe that our students, educators, schools, leaders, um, families and communities deserve an educational leader 
who knows about how the economics and political and social infrastructures directly impact our schools directly and how to work with them from Murphy to Mantio and everywhere in between um, and being able to start the job on day one because I know the infrastructure of our state. Well, and that's one of the things that I um, want to, in order to run, uh, you know, presumably against Mark Johnson. I mean, yes. Mark, Mark hasn't actually officially announced for running for re-election, but that's the presumption. You'll need to win the Democratic primary first. We've had four other candidates mm-hmm. on. What do you bring to the table? Um, you know them, or at least you know of them, um, that, um, that they don't. I mean, why you and not them? I have a very unique lens into the way our entire school system works. So throughout my career, I've worked closely with both general education, special education, worked closely with our teacher assistants, bus drivers, our school leaders and district leaders, our state superintendents, or our superintendents, excuse me, across the state, our school psychologists. And so my lens understands how the different facets of our educational system must work together to change outcomes for kids. So every, um, every person who uh, works in our education system, it's hard to know every single lens from rural places to urban places, um, from gen ed and special ed, but I do have that unique lens. And plus my training and my experience has been in educational leadership, which in my opinion, this job needs educational leadership. And then as a caveat, also um, I've been through training to be what's called an implementation science specialist. And that's with a national organization. Um, Therefore, I have the skill sets to go ahead and know what policies and practices can actually be implemented, and then also what caveats may be there. And I think compounding that with my doctoral degree and having that um, social justice focus is being able to ask is what population may this policy or practice marginalize and who may it help to be able to help with our inequities? Well, you, you mentioned um, um, early the, the, the quote from Barbara Jordan mm. about uh, the wrongdoing being okay. I mean, so I'm going to take it with it. You think there's some wrongdoing right now in the way our school, public school system is being led. And yes. so that really gets to what would you do differently than the current state superintendent? Um, Focus on public education. I'm going to say that bluntly, is that um, our current state superintendent is not advocating for our public schools, um, is not putting the infrastructure in place to support our educators, to support our students. Um, And that is one big difference there, is actually put our students back in the center of our decision making, not politics. And um, just like other people, I've personally seen political decisions uh, being the overriding force than what's best for our educators and our students. So you overlapped. um, um, uh, Mark Johnson was elected in in, um, in November 2016. So how you overlapped by how long at at the department before you left? I was with him for two years. Two years. All mm-hmm. right. So, because I, I want to get to that, because you've, uh, you know, just coincidentally have been in the news yourself yeah. um, over this controversial state contract that Superintendent Johnson, DPI, awarded to a company called iStation mm-hmm. to provide a, a digital online reading assessment tool for K3 to replace the current one. Uh, uh, from a company called Amplify, M-Class, I think, is that, what's the, the, the tool that's being Am- used? Well, the company's Amplify, Amplify and they were right. using M-Class, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a big contract. Yes. Um, you were, what was your role 
um, in evaluating that contract and looking at potential vendors? So I was one of the leaders of that project. So when anytime anything goes out like that, people at the department are tasked with being leaders to help write up the business rules and make sure the evaluation committee is intact and become that strong liaison. So I was one of two what's called business owners, which really translates into procurements and saying that they're just leaders of the project. Right, and so you had a task force that was looking at of, of folks to, to evaluate, or was it just it was you and another person, or was it another group of people? Um, I comprised um, a large task force. So it was interesting that in the budget bill of 2017, it gave the state superintendent, in this case Mark Johnson, the authority to select the tool. So that was a new caveat that um, was different than anything else we'd done at the department procurement-wise. Um, but in addition to that, what um, we did was create, uh, myself and the other business owner, create a large team. Um, those made up of people at the Department of Public Instruction, as well as people who are current educators in the field. So looking at what the legislation said this tool had to do, this K-3 assessment. So we had general education, special education, school psychologists, uh, teachers who work with kids speaking English as a second language, our advanced learners. Um, folks who had knowledge and skill sets in dyslexia. So we formed a very robust team, as any good leader would do, to be the experts to look at the four vendors who came and, through. And, and I know, look, it's easy to get into the weeds about what these tools are. I mean, we've, yeah. got, we've got K3 through teachers who yep. know exactly what we're talking about. Yep. Others are like, what are they talking about? <laughs> but this is, a per, this is a tool to assess how, how well students are reading and how, so it's a way to sort of see where they are. Yeah, and any reading. risk factors that may be there. Do you believe the state superintendent ignored the um, recommendations of the team that you led? What I can say in December 2018, I was one of four people who sat with him, giving him the recommendations and rankings from that robust, very full team of experts that did not have iStation ranking as the first one. Right. And so, and so at this point where we are is that we've signed the contract, the state mm -hmm. has, DPI has. It was going to be implemented, actually it is going to be implemented really starting this next month, um, but the State Board of Education, I guess, has pushed back to say we're not going to actually use the scores until January, but uh, it is actually moving forward. So, And I mentioned the headlines there is yeah. a, a controversy. So just last word from you, um, you know, what do you want people who are watching who are not thinking about you as a potential uh, candidate, what do you want them to know about you? Um, that quickly. I have, and very quickly, um, I have worked with every facet of our educational system. Um, I'm a strong educational leader with a very positive long track record for that right here in North Carolina. And I currently work with our North Carolina schools and other schools across the nation every single day to transform policies and practices for good outcomes for all of our students pre-K through 12. All right, Dr. Amy Jablonski. Well, thank you very much. Well, good luck on the campaign thank trail. You. I congratulate anyone who, who's willing to throw their hat in the ring for you know, political office. So thanks so much for being and here. And thanks for all that you do. After the break, this week's final word. For my final word, I want to revisit an item I covered in the headlines, the innovative school district. Now, you're familiar with, familiar with the phrase red flags, as in, were there any red flags or signs of trouble early? Boy, with the ISD, you could cover several soccer fields with red flags since the General Assembly created this program in 2016. First of all, it was modeled after Tennessee's Achievement School District, a program that has failed to improve Tennessee's lowest performing schools. Its most recent superintendent that was hired just a year ago, she just resigned. That's the fourth leader in seven years. Here in North Carolina, we're about to have our third leader of the Innovative School District in two years. In Tennessee, lack of community buy-in has been cited as one of the top reasons it never succeeded. 
Here, several schools were identified for placement in the ISD, but at least one besides Southside Ashpole was selected for takeover, yet every one of them fell through due to local opposition. In the meantime, North Carolina taxpayers are paying Achievement for All Children, which is a charter management organization that was hired to run Southside Ashpole, even though they were, they've never run a school before, and after being found by the third-party evaluator is not meeting the qualifications to do so. So taxpayers are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on high-level administrative staff at DPI to oversee a school district that operates one school. North Carolina legislators copied a failed program from another state and somehow made it worse. The good news is that only one school so far has been taken over. The red flags keep piling up. You know what red usually means? Let's stop. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for watching and we'll see you next week.